We have mentioned a number of times, uh, probably too much, but just uh, by way of reminder, many of the sermons that uh, Caleb and I are preaching uh, this year fall in line with the mission statement that the elders, the deacons, and the preachers uh, got together to develop, to guide the work that uh, we do here, of course, in alignment with uh, the will of God. And the purpose of this mission statement is, is just that, to remind us of how we are going to execute the work of God in our sphere of influence in this community. And so that mission statement is strengthening our family and influencing our community by embodying the truth in love. And so each of the sermons, not every sermon this year, but many of them, perhaps even half of them at least, are geared towards some part of that statement because we believe that it is directly connected to what we're trying to do as a family of Christians and as proclaimers of the gospel in the community where God has blessed us to be fortunate enough to try to save souls. And so this morning, the sermon falls in line with that mission statement. But I would say to you that it is really connected with every part of that statement. And while I present it as one that's focusing on the truth in love aspect of our mission statement, I think you'll see that it involves not only strengthening ourselves, but influencing our community as well. The subject really of this sermon has to do with discipline this morning. And in fact, I've entitled the lesson, Preaching and Teaching the Truth in Love Involves Discipline. I, I expect that you have become aware from time to time of congregations of God's people that have moved to discipline a wayward member of the church. And they have, at least in the community, received a black eye of sorts because that person on the receiving end of the corrective discipline goes out and publishes what the church has done to them. And so the community, lacking context for that action on the part of the church, sees it very negatively. And many times they will say things along the lines of, I would never be a part of a church that would treat its membership that way. They lack context. They lack an understanding of what has gone on before that particular action was taken. They lack context of the things that should have taken place before that particular action was taken. That public assessment of the church's action lacks context, one of the initial commitment that the individual that has now been disciplined, the initial commitment that they made to God when they became a member of the church to begin with. That person made a decision 
to wholeheartedly commit themselves to Jesus Christ. And somewhere along the way, at least if the church is, is acting in accordance with Scripture, that person ceased to have that kind of commitment. It lacks an understanding of all of the encouragement that has gone into that person prior to that step being taken. It lacks context of the edification that the church was providing in that community that that member very likely had withdrawn themselves from. It lacks an understanding and appreciation of the, the concern in the hearts and minds of Christians who were willing to do whatever was necessary in love to bring that soul back to God. And it lacks the context of even understanding the loving efforts that are being made to try to save a soul. <clears throat> Corrective discipline in the church is never the first step. On the contrary, it, it is a last step action that is taken after everything else has been accomplished and has failed to bring that person back to God. This morning, I want to talk about church discipline, but maybe from a perspective that we have not thought about it, I want to think about doing this in love, as we preach and teach the truth in love, then discipline is a part of that. Love involves discipline. Discipline involves love. Preaching and teaching the truth obviously involves love, but it, it also involves discipline. And I hope you get the point that, that this subject just permeates all of our work as God's people and as the church in this community. There, there are three components, or I've said in times past, three layers really to discipline. All of these involve love to some degree in both directions, mostly. But a lack of love can result in a breakdown in, in any of these layers of discipline that must be applied to the life of a Christian and to the family of God's people. The first one is this, and I'm going to present it, present these in the form of a question that hopefully you and I will internalize and ask as we consider what the scriptures say relative to this point. The first question, first layer of discipline has to do with self-discipline. And the question is this, do we love enough to be self-disciplined? Do we love enough to be self-disciplined? And you might be thinking in your mind, love, love who? Well, love God ultimately. Do we love God enough to be self-disciplined? But also, do we love our families if we're at the point in our life or if the circumstances in our life are such that we have a family that we have created on our own through marriage and having children or looking backwards at people in our lives? Do we love our families enough to be self-disciplined? Do we love the church 
enough to be self-disciplined? Do we love the gospel and its power to save souls enough to be self-disciplined? That's the first layer of discipline. And if I'm going to avoid being a hypocrite, and if I'm going to preach and teach and embody the truth and love, then discipline is a part of that, and it starts with self-discipline. That's the first mode, we might say, of discipline, and it's a life examination. It should be. It should be a self-examination, an examination of myself to ask the question, am I where I need to be? And if I'm not, am I doing what I need to do to get to where I need to be and to stay where I need to be? In 2 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 5, Paul says, examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you unless you become disqualified? Test yourselves. Examine yourselves. You see, when I mentioned at the outset a congregation that has, has gotten a black eye in the community because they exercise discipline against a wayward member, a member of the congregation, the church who's turned their back on God, what they don't realize is that person has turned their back on God and on the church and on their Christian family and often on their their physical family. There's so much in the background of discipline that needs to be understood. The importance of self-examination. Examining ourselves and testing ourselves. If we would do that, then the church would never need to take drastic measures to try to recover a soul that has abandoned God. If we would practice self-discipline. The Bible teaches us that we're able to know and reflectively apply God's word. Sometimes I read some things in education and I think, what did that say? And I have to go back and read it again and I think, I still don't know what it said. And I still don't know what it said. But that's not true with God's word. The Bible is written in such a way and it is written directly enough and plain enough that you and I are able to know and reflectively apply what it says. James 1 verses 22 through 24 says, we're to be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving ourselves. Listen to what James says and think about the ability to know and to reflectively apply God's word here. For if anyone is a hearer of a word and not a doer, he is like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. For he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. James taught that you and I can look into the word of God like a mirror, and we can see the things that are awry in our lives, and we have the power and capacity to correct those things. And if I'm a self-disciplined person, then I will move to do that. That's not saying it will always be easy. 
but I will move to make those changes and adjustments when I see them. The problem is, or the problem arises when we won't comply with what we see or what we read. Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 27, But I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. Paul says, I have to practice discipline of myself so that I don't become disqualified. He started that in verse 25 by saying, Everyone who competes for a prize is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we an imperishable crown. We are working toward and striving something that it, for something that is incomparable in this world. We're talking about eternal salvation, and we get one shot at it. One shot. It's not like the Olympics where you can train for a number of years to go and compete in this game. And if you don't win, then you can go back and you can train for some more years and then go back and compete. It's not like that at all. We get one shot at eternal life. And it's going to take self-discipline to make that a reality. First Peter chapter 2 and verse 11 says, Beloved, I beg you, as sojourners and pilgrims abstain from fleshly lusts, which war against the soul, just like the athlete has to abstain from things in the process of discipline, so do we. And it's not always easy, but it's necessary. It's been said in various ways, but this sentiment is true. The battle is more about our will, not so much about our ability. You can do anything that God expects you to do. I can do anything God expects me to do. You can. We can. It's not so much about the ability as it is about the will. The question I have to ask myself is, am I willing to do it? Am I willing to put forth the effort to do it? And that's the question we all ought to ask ourselves. Do I love enough in all of the areas where I'm expected to love? Myself, God, the church, my family, the influence of the gospel in my community. Do I love enough to practice self-discipline? Paul said in Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, if then you were raised with Christ, seek those things above where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. You see, it's more about the will. What am I willing to do? Not so much about my ability. I think of Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, where Paul said, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Now listen to this. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect 
will of God. You see, the battle is more about the will, what I'm willing to do, what I've made up my mind to do, than it is about what I am able to do. God gave us a body, one source said, that can withstand just about anything. It's convincing our mind. That's the hard part. And so we have to ask ourselves first, as we think about discipline, as we think about preaching, teaching, and even embodying the truth in love, that involves discipline, and first it involves self-discipline. Well, I take care of discipline myself so that the church doesn't have to take care of discipline for me. See, that'll go a long way. And keeping an uneducated and uninformed community from thinking disparagingly or bad about the church, when they see the church doing what it does out of love and out of respect for the will of God, We'll save the church from having a black eye in the community if we'll self-discipline ourselves. Number two, here's the second question. Another layer of discipline is preventative discipline. And here's the question. Do we care enough to engage in preventative discipline? Do we care enough to engage in preventative discipline? You know, discipline is a fact of life, preventative even. <clears throat> you students in school, there are class rules. I don't know what they are. They're probably not anything today like they were when I was in school. <clears throat> I know probably in some classrooms you can sit with <laughs> headphones in your ears. That would never have happened when I was in school. We didn't even have headphones <clears throat> There are a lot of differences, but make no mistake about it, there's, there are some rules in those classrooms, and they're preventative rules. They're rules to keep the class in order so the teacher doesn't have to step in and apply whatever kind of discipline they might be allowed to apply today. I don't even know about that either. You drive a car... There's some preventative discipline that goes along with that. <clears throat> you have to put gas in the tank. You have to change the oil. If you don't, you learn what happens when you don't apply the preventative discipline to that situation. Parents tell children, don't go in the street. Don't play in the street. Maybe when they're young, they can play in the backyard, but not in the front yard, or they can play in the front yard and not in the backyard. <clears throat> For me, when the street lamps came on, the, at, not the street lamp, but the security light out behind the house, when it came on, it was time to go home. <clears throat> Preventative discipline, because my parents didn't want me out too late after dark. Not corrective, but preventative, to avoid or prevent something bad from happening. That, that's a fact of life. And it shouldn't be any surprise that the church, the way God has set it up, is an environment of preventative discipline. 
There are a lot of layers or efforts in which we engage that are preventative. Maybe you've never thought about it that way, but I'm challenging us this morning to care enough to engage in the preventative discipline that takes place in this environment. Before, before the punitive discipline, like corrective discipline, before that ever comes into the picture, there have been efforts to prevent the need for correction, preventative discipline. If you think about Adam and Eve, before God ever expelled them from the garden, corrective discipline or preventative discipline had been applied. Genesis chapter 2, verses 15 through 17, Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to tend it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Listen, of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day you eat of it you shall surely die. That's preventative discipline. God said these are the parameters of behavior. This is the environment where you are safe. If you step outside of that, you're in danger. And God was trying to prevent the danger. Just like parents do with children, just like teachers do in classrooms, just like automobile manufacturers do with the cars that we buy, just like so many areas of life, we expect that there's going to be some kind of preventative measures to keep us from getting in a bad place. And so in the church, preventative discipline comes in various ways or various forms. It comes in the form of instruction. And so preventative discipline is instructive. What do I mean by that? Well, think about Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 through 21, where Paul uh, elaborated on the works of the flesh. He said they're evident which are these, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murder, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in times past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Preventative discipline in the form of instruction. These things are dangerous to your spiritual well-being. And if you'll just think back through that list of things, how many of those are things that cause problems in the church, cause problems when it comes to the public perception of the church? Many of them do. And so we receive instruction in the church environment, even this morning. This is an effort to apply some preventive, preventative discipline through the form of instruction. Why is that even necessary? Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing in his kingdom. God's going to judge the living and the dead. 
He says, preach the word, be ready in season, out of season, convince, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and doctrine. Why? For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But they'll heap to themselves teachers having itching ears, and they'll turn away their ears from the truth and be turned to fables. And so it's necessary that we apply instructive discipline in order to keep people from falling away from the truth. Preventative discipline comes in the form of supportive. Supportive discipline. What, what does that look like? Well, listen to Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25. And let us consider one another, one another. You consider me, I consider you, this side consider this side. We all consider the well-being of one another. This is part of preventative discipline. Let us consider one another in order to stir up unto love and good works. Okay, how, do, how does the church, how does the local congregation, how do the people who maybe don't ever stand in the pulpit and preach, but who sit in the pews and participate as part of the congregation, how do you help in preventative discipline? He says it right here. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. Part of the way that we work together in preventative discipline is to be present when the church is present so we can stir up one another unto loving good works. And you or I haven't prevented anybody from doing anything if we're not engaged in that. So I'm asking us, do we care enough to engage in preventative discipline. It's supportive. Hebrews chapter 3, verses 12 through 13, Beware lest any of you have an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. Dread the day that a person who is saved by the blood of Christ turns away in an evil heart of unbelief and departs from the living God. Well, what can we do about that? But exhort one another daily, while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. There it is again. Exhort, strengthen, encourage, stir up one another. Care enough to engage in preventative discipline. It's supportive. In Matthew chapter 18, when Jesus talks about how you deal with sins that a brother has committed or trespasses that they've committed against you, what do you do? Well, do you just run and tell everybody about it? Do you believe what brother so-and-so did to me or sister so-and-so? No, you go to them, you and them alone, and you talk to them about it. That's supportive. And we have the ability to do that and the obligation to do that. Instructive, supportive, but also preventative discipline can be confrontational. It comes in the form of confrontation. In Galatians chapter 2, verse 11, uh, Paul talks about a confrontation he had with Peter at Antioch. He even goes on to say that he withstood him face to face because he was to be blamed. Here, an apostle to an apostle confronting face-to-face 
preventative discipline. Peter's, Peter was out of alignment with the way he was responding to and treating the Gentile Christians. And Paul saw a need to correct that, but it was preventative, even though it was confrontational. In Matthew chapter 18, if that one-on-one -on -one preventative discipline doesn't work, what's the next step? Well, you take witnesses. Again, it's preventative in the form of confrontation, but the goal is to prevent that person from going further into sin, or it might be to prevent you from making a bigger deal out of something than you're trying to make out of it. Witnesses help establish every word. Confrontational, but preventative. Preventative discipline then is multidirectional. It involves our relationship with God, but it involves our relationship with one another. I hope in this, brothers and sisters, we can see how important it is for us to be engaged with one another. A lot of preachers right now, a lot of elderships are talking about how the church has failed to come out of the pandemic as strong as it was before it went into it. And I've seen statistics recently that say that society as a whole is less concerned about interaction with people personally than it was before that happened. And the church is a, a microcosm of society, and so it stands to reason that we would be influenced to some degree by what's happening in society. And so if society as a whole today is disinterested in spending time together, it stands to reason that we're going to inhale some of that and allow it to influence us. But preventative discipline outlined in the Bible teaches us to reject that and to push back against it and to remember that our engagement with one another is part of the way we are disciplined to stay on the straight and narrow and ultimately to go to heaven. And so when I pull away from the church, I pull away from and rob you of preventative discipline. When you pull away from the church, you rob me and you rob brothers and sisters of preventative discipline in all of the ways that we've described in this point. Let's not do that. Let's recognize the importance of speaking and preaching and teaching embody and embodying the truth and love involves discipline. Not just self-discipline, but the preventative discipline that God has built into the design of the local congregation. Number three and finally, corrective discipline. And here's the question, are we strong enough to apply corrective discipline? Are we strong enough to do it? Sometimes people cease practicing self-discipline. And sometimes people avoid preventative discipline. What do you do then? That is, let's just say me as a preacher. Let's just say I stop disciplining myself. I'm not reading the Bible. I'm not making any effort to grow. 
I'm doing everything I can to find somewhere else to be and avoid my association with God's people, and I'm falling away. And there's, there is no mechanism in place for me to come back because I'm not disciplining myself and I'm, I've drawn away or pulled away from the church. I'm not coming to services. I'm not engaged with the church. And so any effort to prevent me from falling away, it's not going to have any impact on me. What, what do you do then? What do you do? Do you just write people off like that? Or do, do you do what we might be inclined to do today and say, well, look, last two or three churches I've seen that practice corrective discipline, their names were all over the newspaper, and we don't want that. Are we strong enough as a body of people to apply corrective discipline when it's needed? Because when a person gets to that point, they are in a bad place. They're clearly dysfunctional. They're not practicing self-discipline. They're not engaged with the church, so they're not going to get any spiritual vitality from their association with faithful Christians. And Galatians chapter 6, verse 1 says, If any brother is overtaken in a fault, you who are spiritual, restore such a one. But they've withdrawn themselves so far from me, I can't have any impact or influence on them. So what do you do? God's word teaches corrective discipline. And corrective discipline is an urgent measure of love. After all else has failed. Jude said, on some have compassion, making a distinction in others, save with fear. Compassion and fear. Pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment spotted by the flesh. That's love. It's compassion. And it's a willingness to move with fear to pull somebody back. Because they're in a bad place. You have to move quickly. You see firefighters responding to a fire, maybe somebody's residence. They're driving as fast as they possibly can because time is of the essence. When you see police officers responding to some kind of crime or incident or maybe some kind of shooting, they're, they're driving as fast as they possibly can to get there as quickly as they can because time is of the essence. And when people have stepped away from God and they've stepped out of the security of the church of Christ, it is a matter of life and death and it is timely a timely matter. It's an urgent matter. I would say the same principle in Ecclesiastes chapter 8, verse 11 applies not just to wickedness, but to, for, to and for the sake of saving people. There Solomon said, because the sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily, therefore the heart of the sons of men is set fully in them to do evil. Sometimes the church moves so slow in corrective discipline that it's just pointless to even try anything anymore at all because they're so far gone. The church has to be strong enough to do something about it and do it quickly out of love. And it must be a whole team effort. It can't just be the elders. 
It's not just the elders' responsibility. Sure, they initiate it. They tell us what we're doing in corrective discipline, but it's not just them. In Matthew chapter 18 and verse 17, when that matter eventually came to the church, the church had a responsibility, Jesus said. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Verses 4 and 5, Paul told the church at Corinth in handling a matter that was of public nature, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you're gathered together along with my spirit, with the power of the Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, listen, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Move quickly out of love to save people who are lost in sin. And though often misconstrued by the world and maybe even misconstrued by Christians who are ignorant of the purpose of corrective discipline, it's actually a loving response to the situation. Paul would rewrite in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, this punishment which was inflicted by the majority is sufficient for such a man so that on the contrary, you ought rather to forgive and comfort him lest perhaps such a one be swallowed up with overmuch sorrow or too much sorrow. And see, they applied corrective discipline. The man was penitent evidently. And now that demonstration of love was to continue by wrapping him up and reminding him of the security that is to be found in the fold of God's people. This morning, I am trying to challenge us to preach, to teach, and to embody the truth in love. But that involves discipline. It involves self-discipline. It involves preventative discipline, and sometimes it involves corrective discipline. We have to love enough. We have to care enough. And we have to be strong enough to apply God's will in these areas. For us this morning, the questions might be, in what areas of discipline are we failing as a church? As a, as a constituted body of God's people in this community who is trying to do the will of God to the best of our ability to promote his cause in what areas of discipline might we be failing as a church? And then, which of these areas most appropriately applies to me? Do I lack self-discipline? Do I love God? Do I love my family? Do I love the church enough to be self-disciplined? Maybe it's preventative. Maybe I am too selfish to invest in the people in this congregation. Or maybe I am too selfish to connect with the people in this congregation who are trying to invest in me. Which of these areas most appropriately applies to me? And if it's corrective discipline, God forbid, one day, 
Will we as a church be strong enough to do what God expects us to do to save a soul? Or if it's you or if it's me that is on the receiving end of corrective discipline, am I going to go out into the world and give the church a black eye for its efforts to try to save my soul? when I have deprived myself of preventative discipline for years? Or if I wouldn't even move a hand to practice self-discipline? I hope that I never end up on the receiving end of corrective discipline. But I hope if I do, I remember enough about God's word and the body of his people to not forget all of the measures that God had put in place to keep me faithful to him. Would to God that that would be the case with every Christian who falls away rather than doing further damage to the church, not just through the actions that preceded the discipline, but through their response to it. Speaking the truth, preaching the truth, embodying the truth in love involves discipline. And God help us to be courageous enough to consider each of these areas and every facet of discipline and apply what needs to be applied, strengthen what needs to be strengthened and have the resolve to do what God expects us to do, whatever the circumstance might be. If you're here this morning, you're not a Christian. You need to obey the gospel through faith, repentance, confession, and baptism for the remission of your sins. Become a child of God, a part of the church, a part of a group of people who are not only charged by God to help you stay faithful to him, but hopefully who love enough care enough and are strong enough to do that. If you're subject to the invitation in any way this morning, why don't you come as we stand and sing? Thank you for listening to this recorded audio of a sermon that was preached at the Roanoke Church of Christ. If you'd like to visit us, you can do so at 608 Dallas Drive, Roanoke, Texas 76262, or you can visit our website at roanokechurchofchrist.org. We hope to see you soon and may God bless you.